Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to our Be Fabulous podcast. Uh, today we have Sean Beard with us and of course the ever impressive Vibs. And Sean has been with us twice before, and today we are continuing the discussion around reinventing the world with a specific lens on agriculture and what does a new world of agriculture look like. So Sean, last time you took us into the 13th Amendment and you gave us a whole perspective on that, that was absolutely fascinating. So tell us your interest in agriculture. Well, I'll start with a little bit about me. Um... My family on my father's side hails from the mountains of West Virginia, which is uh, an incredible place. It's in some ways it's also a depressing place, but they've they've long been farmers. And I remember going to visit my grandparents when I was a kid, and every summer we would go out, and they would always have this massive garden. And my grandmother would say, "Well, why don't you go out and pick what you want for dinner?" And there's just nothing better. And so it's carried over into my life now. I know my wife gives me grief because uh, I have pretty much turned our entire backyard into a garden every summer. And uh, I always use the excuse that, you know, the reason why uh, people grew grass was because they didn't have to grow their own food. And I thought that was ridiculous (laughs) that we should all grow our own food. So we just turned our yard into uh, one big garden as big as we can. What's your favorite thing to grow? My favorite thing, um, I love to grow broccoli and cauliflower um, because living here in Seattle, it, it works really well because it's a later season crop and it gives me something that extends the garden basically into the end of October or so. How large is your, your garden? Uh, this year, well, I've expanded it again. I've, I've encroached even more. Um, my wife lost a flower bed, so it's probably about um, 1,100 square feet. Right. Okay. Now. Total. Decent, yeah. So, so you exporting your your are you exporting your cauliflower and broccoli? I do um, because it, it has gotten to a point where there's so much, and I have a big canning day where I will can a lot of the vegetables, and uh, then we'll have a bunch of friends over. Well, hopefully this year we'll have a bunch of friends over and um, be able to uh, just have like kind of almost a harvest party or something like that. So however you want to call it, but we have a, we have a big deal. And if you help can, then you get to take home what you can. And and like green beans, I usually, green beans are usually just nuts. They're, they're weeds practically. And by the end of the season, probably have about 40 quarts of green beans canned. Oh gosh. Wow. Wow. So yours is the place to come to. What is the, what is the hardest crop to grow? The hardest? Um, I would say corn is one of the harder crops and it's not because it's particularly hard to grow it's just because you have to have a large amount together in order for fertilization to occur so it takes up a large part of the um takes up a large part of the garden larger than i I necessarily would want for diversity of crops Um, another one that i've had particular problems with is onions being able to do oh. onions from seed, like your regular kind of like your big uh, bulb onions, not green onions. Those are pretty, those are pretty, those are weeds too. They grow pretty easily, but hmm. uh, the bulb onions. So. Well, that gives us a new insight into some of those crops. 
And I love potatoes. I grow potatoes in a potato box, and I usually get about 40 or 50 uh, Yukon Golds a year. That's good. So you, you, you're, you're well on your way to self-sufficiency, it would seem. I, I just need to actually go buy a farm. That would make more sense to me, but uh, it's not in the cards yet. So That's cool. Working so, on it. So tell us a little bit. So, you know, we, wanna, we wanted to spend a bit of time on today's podcast, really. The focus of the podcast is to talk about the future of agriculture as you see it. And, uh, you know, someone who's quite a big thinker from the perspective of, of some of the challenges as well as some of the opportunities that are out there and just generally predicting um, the future. Uh, where have you got to? What's your, what's your, basic, what's your basic assertion? So... Um... So I, got, I have two, and one, I'll, I'll start with another story. So I have two children, both in elementary school, and when my daughter was in kindergarten, um, I went and did kind of, uh, you know, help out and just be a helper in the cafeteria and things like that for kindergarten. If you've never been to a kindergarten lunch, then you have never experienced chaos in one of its truest forms. Um, it was absolutely crazy. But what I observed My wife's a pre-K was, teacher, so I notice, I, oh. I, I, I hear about this, you know, seven, eight times a year. And, and so w- w- what I noticed was, was the differences in lunches that the kids would bring from, bring from home. And some would have, like my daughter, like we would make a sandwich and she would go with some sandwich or vegetable and, um, you know, chips or, or just some, some, then some level of dessert. And then others would have, you know, more along the lines of brownie bites, a sleeve of Ritz crackers and things like that. And I look at this, and, and, and let me just start. There is no judgment in any of this. I understand a lot of reasons behind um, a lot of those types of decisions. But what I, what I did realize was that it's, it's a lot more expensive to eat fresh foods in the United States. And if you look at the cost per calorie of like a brownie bite, the amount of calories you get in the brownie bite is far more than what you'll get in a carrot for example, right? But the carrots will cost more. And so I started thinking about how do we start putting things into a, uh, into more of an even playing field where at least you can have the choice and you don't have to make a financial decision in order to have your choices. Um, You can sit there and choose to have carrots or brownie bites and it doesn't cost any other way. And so I started looking at how could we really start to do that. So I started looking at automation and how do we, I had this uh, project, this thought experiment I've been working on for the last few years called the Free Farm Project. And what that really is, is it's re-envisioning agriculture in completely automated fashions. Meaning how can I have a farm that compl- operates with no human beings? And I, I've done a lot of, I've actually very recently got into 3D printing so I can start printing my own drones so they can start flying around my my backyard and and monitor my garden and do a lot of the things from a technology perspective like like recognize what types of herbal pests are in my garden if you maybe even recognize what kind of um animal pests like crickets or beetles or grasshoppers or something that are in the garden um because then that can all inform how do I treat that and how do I treat it organically versus if I'm not an organic farm, how do I treat it with herbicides or pesticides? And how do we really, what, where's the best use of technology in the farming process? Because if I think about John Deere, which is great, I, I love the John Deere story and I, I've, I've been blessed to work with them before. Um, 
they actually have had self-driving tractors and all of that already worked out. They already, they, they've got that. If you jump in the combine, the combine can drive itself. And I know that their biggest fear from a liability perspective is that the operators are sitting there watching Netflix on their iPads while the combine is actually gathering all the food. And so there's a lot of places where the application of technology can be there. Um, and then there's a lot of opportunities where the technology can help and try to make an automated um, automated farming system. That's fascinating. So the second thing? So the second thing is um, looking at, again, we have a, you know, if we look at the population of the planet, we've got, you know, I mean, it's been fascinating um, that the, so far the population when I was a kid was about 3.5 billion. So here we are at 7.5 billion. And so it's already doubled in my lifetime. And I've heard the numbers I've seen is about 12 and a half to 14 billion um, is how far the population is going to grow again. And then that's almost doubling again. So how do we, and if we think about what, how much food, that's all food that those people will need. Um, there's not as big of a push globally in sustainable farming techniques. And a lot of what um, is a fear is that we're going to completely destroy our soil, our usable soil with current farming techniques. So there's other things that we need to look at in terms of alternative ways of growing. And there's a lot of things that have been written about um, urban, urban farms and being able to really still satisfy the need. But how do we do that at, a, at scale, especially as the scale is growing exponentially with the number of people? And that, that's a, I mean, that's a huge challenge because I, you know, I think the UN numbers, I think the UN numbers that I've seen, uh, you know, kind of tops out about 10.9 billion um, around the 2040, 2050 timeframe, you know, as, a, mm -hmm. as a, I guess the human species hits the edge of the Petri dish. Um, and uh, and it, the, 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 this topic I find really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, you know, uh, it's, it's not new that we kind of predicted um, I can't remember who it was, but if you, oh gosh, I should have remembered it. But um, you know, if you go back several years, there's all sorts of books written about, you know, India, India, for example, is never going to be able to sustain a population if it increases to 800 million. And it, you know, it's now mm -hmm. 1.3, 1.4 billion uh, people. But yet, you know, changes in fertilization, crop, um, breeding, if you like, have, you know, have massively increased the yield per hectare particularly of mm -hmm. corn uh, and wheat um, that that was possible um, for, you know, that was ever considered to be possible. So there are, there are, you know, on the optimistic side, there's all sorts of breakthroughs that we haven't had yet, which will probably contribute to some of that. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of challenges with regards to fertilizer and the increasing use of fertilizer and what that does to the soil and what that does to climate and what that does to emissions and, and all sorts of things as well. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's like a double whammy, you know, in terms of, in, in terms of our, our land usage for farming, but then also uh, the viability at, on scale and, and at a sustainably economic level for, for urban farming and so forth as well. Particularly when you take it out of rich country context. Correct, correct. And, and some of the things that, you know, the, the optimism side of that that I see is we don't know what our upper limits are for calories per acre or That's right. per hectare. Or we, we, don't, we don't have one right now. So I, I have no 
I actually am not worried about our ability to actually feed a population, a global population that big. What I worry about is the ability to sustain a global population that big because of the different, you know, the different techniques that are not being used or being used depending upon your perspective that's causing the soil to basically erode away, the good topsoil that we have to erode away. And so I've looked a lot at, um, you know, vertical farming because another thing we run into is energy. Energy becomes a big driver of cost. So if we go back to my example of trying to make fresh food on the same line as uh, same line as, as some of the other higher calorie things, same cost, it, it energy becomes that becomes part of that. And so if we have urban farms like like I know Vips, you're in Atlanta, and Atlanta gets really hot in the summer. So how do we do vertical farming? efficiently in a very hot environment because we start running into because I you know the the way I've envisioned it is these old like I see them around Seattle all the time down by the down basically down by the the port where we have these old used um, shipping containers which I'm like oh that's perfect for for having vertical grow operations because you can stack these pretty tall state and keep it stable but those are also metal containers that, you know, I grew up in Houston. I know what metal does in the sun. So how do you keep temperatures at a level to grow tomatoes, for example, right? Tomatoes tomatoes like it to be warm during the day. They like it to be cool at night, but they also really like to have heat radiated on them. So they're, they're kind of a needy vegetable, to be honest with you. But um, it's uh, But how do you establish those conditions and give the right grow conditions in a world where you're in the middle of the summer in Atlanta. Yeah. And and we have to really start thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, what does it look like to put things underground? What does it look like? I mean, once you get a few feet below ground, temperature becomes a lot more stable. It becomes a lot less variable. You're a lot less susceptible to even some of the storms that would come through once your food supply is then kept underground. And I'm, and I'm actually a huge fan of closed loop systems um, when it comes to thinking, when, especially when I think about uh, vertical grow operations, uh, because it gives you the ability of, of, let me use the energy I get from gravity to help water and spread water throughout. If you go with an aquaponic system, meaning um, where you have fish that are actually providing the fertilizer, then you can go through and then you have a way of uh, also providing an additional food source by raising the fish. And you can put that food source out into uh, out into the market or put it out there for sale as well. And you're able to continue this grow operation with controlled temperature conditions, m- much more controlled, requiring less energy to maintain and be able to still grow through and without needing the need for soil per se. And because we can use the different fish to fertilize what crops we have and you get past some of the 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 hydroponic problems where I've heard a lot about, you know, you've got to be very careful with hydroponic or else you get lettuce that tastes like nitrogen water, you know, that kind of a thing. So how do you control that taste? And and ultimately that that will be the biggest challenge with all of this is there's something that impacts the taste of the vegetables that we eat that come from growing it in the soil with the right, with those types of nutrients then how do we how are we able to have a satisfactory product at scale using systems that don't use soil and so that, Sean, that'll become a big challenge Sean you've given us some really great ideas and I know our listeners are wondering 
this seems like such a big problem. How do I wrap my head around it? Like, how do I, how do I figure out the scale and, and nature of this problem in such a way that I can figure out what I can do in my own little way? So I, I would say, think about it locally, right? There's, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of catchphrases over the last few years, like farm to table, or, uh, you know, grown locally and, and things like that. And I think we need to start thinking about our agriculture very locally. Um, you know, I, I, I one point had an idea that I said, wouldn't it be neat that if I'm walking home from work or I'm coming home or just leaving the office and I just stop in at a vending machine that goes through and picks a head of romaine lettuce for me, and, and what I think is, is the way that you could think about it more locally or how you would – how to wrap your head around is thinking about your own community um, and how you can grow your – what would it look like to grow your own vegetables within your own community? I mean I know we have – in Seattle, there are certain neighborhoods that have what they call pea patches, which are just little plots where people can go and, and grow their own vegetables. Um, we call them allotments in Britain. Yeah, oh. I was gonna, I was gonna say, but Phipps, I don't think people share their allotment outputs with everybody else. <laughs> I think it's for their own use and some good friends. Yeah, it's true. But I think those, I think thinking about our agriculture more locally, because again, the way we keep costs down is we keep our energy consumption down, transportation costs down, and you know, honestly, automation to keep our our overall people cost down as well. And and there's a big movement heading in that way. Just uh, a couple years ago, um, I was driving, we were going up on, you know, just a little vacation over, like spending over time over a weekend, but we drove through a number of apple orchards. And these, and I saw the I, first time I'd seen the machines that actually can pick the apples off the tree that didn't require um, people to actually go through and do it. And that was that was very fascinating to actually see that we're starting to move very heavily in that direction. And as we as we go through and do that, what ultimately will happen is we'll continue driving the cost down um, of those of that product. And we'll be able to have it compete on a level on a higher level. So is your dream to have 100 percent automated farming operations? Um. I would say that would be mine. That would be the realization of the Free Farm Project is um, it would be even, you know, whether Tesla or Uber or any of the self-driving companies making even the big rigs would be able to have automated delivery of seed and soil or nutrients or fertilizer or what have you, as well as being able to come and pick up the product and take it to market, um, all with all without the need of human beings to do it. Um, just simply because that I would like to see how far we can actually take it and how and can we drive that cost down? Because to me, that's almost a realization of what the AI companies in Silicon Valley were telling us before is that we can get machines to do all the work for us to allow us to go with whatever pursuits that we would want, you know, typically they would uh, talk about being, if you want to be a sculptor, go be a sculptor because the machines will take care of the work. And so I would like to see kind of a realization of that start to happen. That's so quite, uh, so go ahead, Vicky. Yeah, back to your, your opening uh, set of comments around, you know, the bigger problem we're dealing with when we think about the population growth and 
the nature of creating something sustainable and that we can have the right resources to feed everybody. And as I'm thinking about automation at that scale, where a lot of people are employed today, I imagine ultimately we'll get to a stage where it all equals out. But during this interim period, you know, how do you reconcile uh, the loss of those jobs? Because those types of those types of um, individuals don't often have the opportunity to get reskilled in a way that um, others might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've thought about that as well, and and sometimes I wind up with a you know, well, it's six of one and half dozen of the other on that, simply because um, while those while there are some a segment of workers that would lose their jobs, it would also open up opportunities for others on the other side. And um, I don't necessarily have a really good answer for how to do that other than I think as I think in general in a much broader statement about the automation of things, you know, be it anything from white collar work to um, to blue collar work of any kind, it becomes it behooves the entities like the governments around us to be able to have more interest or focus on retraining programs. I know that there was a big push when the automotive industry in the late 70s, early 80s was disrupted and automation started to really disrupt that industry. There was a big push for retraining. Um, In fact, just in the last few weeks within the new uh, presidential administration within Joe Biden's administration, they're already talking about when we're shutting down the pipelines, we need to have a retraining into more renewable forms, you know, and and I don't know what that looks like. And I don't think, I don't think any of us have a really good model for what that looks like right now. But I think that's where we would need to dedicate if we know that we are going to be impacting those workers, we need to give them at least the opportunity to to take advantage of some level of retraining or opportunity, um, and let them let them take it if they choose to. So I know you well enough to know that you've probably given this some thought, but so I'm gonna I'm playing devil's advocate here. So I, I'm also relative. I mean, we're, we're all we're all refugees of the technical world, and in your case, you're still very deep deep in the technology world. Um, does automation actually fundamentally Technology automation, I mean, yeah? Does it actually fundamentally solve the problem? Does it actually solve the problem of getting more produced, you know, per hectare, per per acre for a population that's going to hit 10.9 billion over the next 20, 30 years? I mean, I, I'm always attracted right. by anything that creates efficiency and allows people to do, people to be involved less so they can do other things. And generally, the economy has a tendency to find ways to absorb people in other you know, in other jobs, in other areas. But, but I, I, you know, I guess I'm coming at it from a, you know, we live in a very privileged place. We live in the States, one of the richest countries in the world. You know, we're talking about hydroponics and vertical farming. And that is, un, that is likely to be cross prohibitive in huge parts of the world, maybe even here. So I'm, I'm curious as to where you are from an economics point of view with some of that. So... I I would go down the path of it is, you know, the way people talk about renewables and new energy sources today, right? Um, You know, it is is very expensive 
to put in solar farms, for example, right? I mean, um, the Chinese ha- have actually spent billions on their solar farms. And um, so I think it, I would say it, the way we look at it now, it's very expensive because all the systems in place are focused or centered around um, field field growing. So growing in soil with the machines, the tractors, everybody, you know, the tractors and all the equipment and that whole system is in place and has been optimized over hundreds of years um, at this point. With something new, like like any new technology, it's always going to be come with two things, a higher cost and a steeper learning curve because it's new and not everybody is really able to, not everybody is really able to um, wrap their head around it or even afford it. But if we don't start, then it will, it will always be in that place. It will always be at a place where it is far too expensive because we haven't been taking the time to build the systems around, build the systems around that type of farming. And so we won't have an ecosystem that will help drive those costs down in the long term over, over time. Yeah, so you see it very much as we better start incubating the stuff now if we want to bring it online in a reasonably, um, in a reasonably financial, financially or economically viable way over the next 30, 40, 50 years. Right. I, I, I use an example. I know that um, I, I, I like to use Tesla as an example because they've done some, they've made some really smart decisions over the years. And one of the things I think is really smart, like they, in the last, they, they last shareholders meeting, they announced that, um, the, that within three years they want to have a twenty-five thousand dollar electric vehicle, which is pretty significant in terms of the affordability of a car. And I believe the reason why that that is going to be possible is because they spent the time building out the infrastructure to support electric vehicles. So if I think about Tesla, I drove my car from Seattle to Houston, and I was able to do it very easily. Um, and charge along the way. And it's because they put that infrastructure in place that is enabling a $25,000 electric vehicle because you don't, now you don't, you've had all the cost absorbed of putting that infrastructure in place. Now they can focus on just selling the cars. So I think with um, agriculture, it'll be the same. If you start putting the ecosystem or you start putting the systems in place to be able to support that level of agriculture, the cost will will come down dramatically. Do you think, do you think, um I mean, Tesla's actually also a good example, right? Because in, a, in, a, you know, in addition to the, the economies of scale kicking in, proving a new market, still dealing with a whole bunch of regulatory challenges with regards to car dealerships and God knows what else. Um, when you think about what you're describing, um, how, what is the role for government and regulation and centralized investment in that? Or do you see it as a purely private endeavor? No, I think I think it. Um, you know, I think it becomes a, a the role of the government to again the way we think about preserving. You know, the way we th- I guess the way I think about national parks, it becomes they they have an obligation to preserve the soil. They have an obligation to preserve the environment that allows their people to accomplish what they want to accomplish right it's and so i think that they have a responsibility to think about these things and start putting these systems in place so that so that they can prevent their soil from being the one that 
that's is no longer sustainable. You know, I think about um, the movie Interstellar, and this, it was this case essentially. It was a blight that started affecting all the crops, to where even the college education and education in general had been completely devalued because they had they needed destroyed farmers. the soil. Yeah, and they needed farmers to be able to just. Uh, feed the population so and and i and so i think um it becomes the responsibility of the government to actually protect and to try to preserve the environment or at least try to put a place where we're not in a situation where we have to completely devalue things that are important or take away choice from people simply because we we have a need and we can't support our own population from a food perspective um, and that becomes, I think, very problematic. And there, there, there's, there's, and that's just one vector in that in that kind of sphere of things. That that's one vector. Um, you know, the thing that kind of frightens me is that there's a number of things that the government has done to not protect the environment that is putting that I believe is putting the food supply at great risk a lot. And things things like the legislation on seeds. Um, you know, the, I don't think anybody's going to come after me for it, but I intentionally um, harvest seeds from my crops and grow them the next year uh, because I think the fact that it's illegal for me to do so is wrong. Um, I, I find it very uh, – it's disconcerting that you can patent a seed and that the crop that I grow from that seed, it is illegal for me to take the new seed and plant it again. Um, having that level of control of designer agriculture, if you will, I think is very problematic. And if and if these manufacturers get what ultimately they really want, which is to have a seed that will only produce for one year, then you can start because nature will find a way. It will get out. You cannot keep it within the confines of your field. And so if you have that seed starting to mingle like corn that only produces once a year – and then you have it with corn that produces every year, do you get a mule situation, right, where you now have an infertile seed that comes out of that? And those types of things will put the food supply at risk. And so I think there's legislation that needs to be changed in terms of the ability to create these patentable seeds that are there because ultimately it, it can hurt the food supply. Yeah, complex issues because on the other hand you've got millions if not billions go into investing in in producing them in the first place and so how do you how do you create an environment where that r d um and that investment actually flows with sufficient mm -hmm. opportunity to create a, to create some kind of return in over a you know it's the same issue with pharmaceuticals um and patent patent timelines on those so it's a fascinating complex subject so mm -hmm. bring it bringing it back so you know we got about 10 15 minutes left i'm really curious on your take on so you know what should we as fabulous people on that journey be thinking about and doing more of? What, what, how, would you, how would you encourage us from a call to action perspective? What, what should we be doing? You know, I, I would say the first thing that, that people should do is, you know, I would say pick a vegetable and grow it. Grow it on your windowsill. Um, you know, start to experience, because I think, I think it'll give you a perspective on on, you know, one, it's always amazing to me. I, I grow these vegetables and especially if I start from, 
you know, tomato seeds. Tomato seeds are so small. And um, what they grow into, it's just, and it's just an amazing thing. And I think because I want everyone to think about, you know, what what does agriculture look like from a local perspective? Mm. I mean, you know, it's nice that I can, in Seattle, I can get avocados. But I can tell you right now, avocados don't grow in Washington. Not the right, definitely not the right temperature. And I think it's kind of crazy that I can get grapes in December, but you know, but it's, but to me, it's all about thinking about how do we do things more locally? How do we grow and have those things more readily available to us? Like I said, if I have a vertical grow operation in Seattle, then the overall cost drives down. People are healthier. um, They're given more choice. They're given more Does cost really grow down? Help me explain. Help, just help me understand that, because I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just trying to understand mm-hmm. how do the economies of scale kick in 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 a local model of that nature. If you're able to satisfy, if you're able to sat, have enough to satisfy the demand, you no longer have the transportation costs that okay. that are incurred. Right. So, again, right? I, I grew up in Houston, and for a lot of things, it's considerably cheaper there because it just sometimes feels like Seattle's a million miles away from everything. So mm. just the overall transportation costs on things um, make things uh, a point or two higher okay. in cost. All right. So you have a three. You know me, I'm a big fan of rules of three. So I, I, I got pick a veg and grow it. Experience, experience what it means to farm for yourself. Two, think of it from a local perspective. What can you do locally um, in your communities? Uh, maybe maybe I do tomatoes, someone else does carrots, someone else does broccoli, and we have our mm-hmm. own little micro farming clubs in our in our in our little household communities. Right. I need a third one from you now because I just um, I don't like number, I don't like twos. Well, then on the third, it would definitely be you should buy organic, organic just because of the if they're following the right guidelines with um, organic growth, then you're not poisoning the soil um you know we things like things that drive me crazy like the like we talked about the designer seeds well having roundup resistant potatoes right that's that's one of the things that comes uh, out of idaho and things like that that are out there i mean great my potatoes will still grow in roundup but they won't grow for many more years because we're putting roundup in it and so it um i would say stay organic um, let things be natural, um, you know, and I, I tend to think that things taste a little bit richer and they taste better when they're organic, but at least the fruits do. So, Sean, as we close, what is your passion around this subject? You know, you have so many big topics that you care about. Where does this one rank in, in all the different Ooh. topics that you care about in a, in a big scale? Um, that's not fair. That's a great question. Have, that's a great I, question. I have it's, probably the one, that. it's probably the one question he was hoping you didn't ask. <laughs> well, I didn't ask him to force rank them all. That could be worse. <laughs> but because I thought about if I thought I thought about the three of them, and you know, one was uh, I, and I thought about it when I thought about it, how big are these. One was resource management. That was the world without garbage. One was social justice, which was the one about the 13th Amendment. And then this one is food production. And, I, and then, so it's really hard for me to rank them. Um, you know, I think I'll answer it like this. Um, 
and it's this is a bit of a cop out, and I know that, but I'm gonna put them all equal, but in different contexts. So I feel like that from a social justice perspective, I have a responsibility to do something. From a resource management perspective, I I want I want to leave something for my children, and I'd like to be able to leave the earth to them better than the way I found it. And then from a food production, I feel like that that is just my personal, just something I personally love and is a personal passion of mine. That's in kind of, as I described in the very beginning, it just feels like it's part of my DNA. And there's just to be out there and getting the soil ready and planting and getting everything ready to go for the season is just one of the most exciting things for me in the year. I'm picturing a Venn diagram with those three dimensions and Sean at the middle of it all. Yeah. <laughs> sure, Sean, let me ask you the question in a slightly different way because I, it was a bit of a cop-out. So, yeah, I, I, but, but, I, but I understand why it needs to be a cop-out, right? Because they're all big and they're all, they're all equally valuable depending on the value judgment you associate with each one of those. So I, I'm not going to put you on the spot in a really hard way, but I'm going to ask you, in your, from your perspective, if you look at it just from the volume of impact it could have in terms of the number of people that could be touched or impacted by that, how would, how would, you, how would you rank them through that lens? So ultimately, I would probably rank them as the resource management would be number one. Because I feel like that the, the impact, even after I'm gone, the impact could still be a very big part of uh, how we how we kind of go moving forward, um, you know. And then, uh, the, yeah, I, I don't know if I, uh, the next one for me feels like food production is would really be the next one because we we need to we can't really do much good if we can't eat, right? And and what starts to happen when those basic systems start to break down? Um, I think that uh, the Handmaid's Tale starts to give us a glimpse, at least gives us a perspective on what can start to happen when these social constructs that we take for granted really start to break down and things start to change. So I couldn't even imagine what, what it would mean in terms of it becomes a fight for food globally oh, yeah. at that point. Um, so we've well, got to It is, it sure is in some can, parts of the country, uh, sorry, some parts of the world now. Correct, correct. And then I would put the social justice piece on that after. And it's not to put it last. It's just I feel like in terms of impact, that's th- that it would be the third one in terms of impact. Because those are, and again, right, those are, those are problems that are systems that we created that we can fix. It's... Um, not as much an interaction between us and and the planet, for example, um, as much as it is just fixing the things that we broke. And so we should be able to to handle that. Well, Sean, you've given us a very good perspective on this this big issue and potential solutions to it uh, in, in very different ways, plus what we can do do locally. Any closing thoughts from your side? Um, no, I, well. 
I say no, and then I start talking. So I'm going to say yes. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, one, I would say thank you to uh, Vicky, to you and Vips for giving me this platform or this forum to kind of express these ideas because I've I'm definitely someone, and Vips knows that I'm someone that keeps these things in my head all the time. So to be able to get them out every once in a while is uh, is good because even with uh, as I've said them, I've been solutioning as I say them out loud. So it's been um, it's been a great experience for me. So I appreciate and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. And I, I would and what I would say to anyone listening also, and I feel like a. Uh, 1980s PSA, but, um, you know, I mean, don't be afraid to go out. If you have a passion about something, don't be afraid to go out and pursue it. It's, you know, even if it doesn't materialize into exactly what you want it to, um, you know, you've got to give yourself the chance to let you explore the things that are important to you. And, and it's, to me, I view it as one way to avoid regrets later in life. So. Sean, I love that because you have this big job, you've got all this going on, and then you've got these very varied passions and ideas that you love to play with and make progress on, and it, it just smacks of somebody having a fulfilling life. Very inspirational. Yeah. Uh, and once again, thank you for joining us on these. It's uh, you know, it's it's really fabulous to hear. I mean, it's what we're about, and it's um, we are very happy for any any help and support we can give you if you can make. 2% progress on any one of those three ideas, it would be a very fulfilling life indeed, and <laughs> certainly one that would leave tremendous legacies. So uh, uh, thank you so much um, for your time and energy. And no doubt we'll find another way to get you back on. Um, but you've got, you've got your own business ventures and business models to work on. And uh, <laughs> so I, I will be holding you accountable for that in the weeks and months ahead as well. So uh, th thank you so much. And uh, until next time, everyone, be fabulous. Mm -hmm.